This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow and Director for Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. This episode of Pandemic Planet is an edited version of a live conversation I had on November 15th with Seth Berkeley, Chief Executive Officer of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. We're here to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic, lessons learned over the last two years, and opportunities for improving the global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. Seth was last at CSIS in February of 2020, just as cases of COVID-19 were starting to increase in Europe, particularly Italy. The occasion was an event looking ahead to Gavi's replenishment and next work phase, scheduled for later that year. But even in February, we had talked quite a bit about the coronavirus outbreak and how it might unfold. In particular, we discussed the importance of international cooperation, solidarity really, in the face of a pandemic, and how institutions might need to be reformed or retrofitted in order to ensure equitable access to new technologies like vaccines. Just a few months later, in April of 2020, the global community did come together to launch the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. It placed special emphasis on ensuring globally equitable access to COVID-19 therapies, diagnostics, and vaccines. Now, COVAX is the vaccine pillar within the ACT Accelerator. Within COVAX, which Gavi co-leads with the World Health Organization and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, or CEPI, Gavi oversees vaccine procurement and distribution through the COVAX facility. It also manages the advanced market commitment to ensure eligible lower and lower middle income countries can access COVID-19 vaccines. We're here today to talk about COVAX, its past, its present, and its future. Seth, welcome back to CSIS. Thank you so much. So when we spoke about a year ago, and of course at that point it was by Zoom as opposed to in person, uh, but this was for the inaugural episode of our podcast series, Pandemic Planet, You said that the work of setting up COVAX over the previous six months had been kind of like building a sailboat when you're in a storm in the middle of the high seas. Now, it's certainly no secret that it hasn't always been smooth sailing, and if you'll permit me to extend the metaphor, you've been in uncharted waters a lot of the time. Now, early on, COVAX placed a big bet on the AstraZeneca vaccine with plans for a manufacturer by Serum Institute of India But then when the Delta variant caused a huge COVID surge in India in April of 2020, the government instituted export controls, and those have only recently been lifted. At the same time, the market for vaccines has been very difficult to read. First, it was high-income countries going around 
COVAX in pursuing bilateral deals focused on national interest. Then we saw industry prioritizing sales to the highest bidders. But we've also seen the African Union negotiate bilateral deals with vaccine manufacturers. And then PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, which is part of the World Health Organization, but also maintains its own regional vaccine procurement, stepped forward with plans of its own. China moved quickly to provide more than a billion doses to paying customers. But at the same time that all of this was going, you also, you also faced some challenges in negotiating with the mRNA vaccine manufacturers, like Pfizer and Moderna. So, you know, on top of all this, we're seeing, you know, the, the forecast that was at 1.2 billion has been, you know, revised now down to 1.4 billion by the end of 2021. And we're seeing the push for boosters in high-income countries for older populations and also now access to vaccines for children threaten to claim significant volumes of vaccine as well. But, you know, on the bright side, we're also starting to see a whirlwind of diplomatic effort. The U.S.-led global summit, the COVID-19 summit in September. The recent G20 ministerial, uh, the ministerial uh, last week, uh, Secretary Blinken's COVID-19 uh, meeting with foreign ministers, and now we've got the upcoming World Health Assembly and a commitment to host uh, uh, heads of state summit uh, by President Biden in 2022. So I wanna start by looking back at the past, and COVID doesn't have a long history, but it has a rich history for, for such a short time of being. How did things get off track with some of the forecasting and assumptions about available supplies and manufacturing? And what would you say are kind of the main lessons learned from this, this short period from April of 2020 until now? So, so thank you. And that was a very long set of questions in history, some of which I, I actually don't think is correct. And, and so um, what I'd like to do is maybe go back and give a slightly different perspective on some of this, but answer the question on on you know, why we are where we are and, and what could be different. So first of all, um, the conversation on COVAX actually started in Davos in, in uh, January. And the question at that point was, is this the big one or is this just a dress rehearsal for the big one? And the planning for this began because we knew what happened in the previous pandemic um, around swine flu in 2009, and we didn't want a repeat of that. And, and what happened at that time was basically wealthy countries bought up all of the doses that were produced, and it took a very, very long time for doses to flow to the south. So the goal in putting together COVAX was to try to think about how we might approach that differently. Now, if I want to start with lessons learned connected to that, we started, of course, with no money. We started with no bandwidth. And those are two important issues because... Um, you know, Gavi is an organization known for being lean. Our, our overhead rate was 2.47%. And so the donors love that, but it didn't give us a lot of bandwidth to be able to scale. And of course, to be able to purchase doses, we needed to, to raise finance. And, and we've successfully raised finance, but of course, there's a lag time to what you're, you're, you're able to do. So what's interesting to me is to go back and look at what happened. And the reason we started with AstraZeneca is not for the reason um, that, um, you know, in a sense, we had, we had problems um, or negotiating with the, the well, let, let, me, let me be honest about it. So we, of course, looked at what vaccines might come quickly. We looked at the mRNA vaccines. We looked at AstraZeneca. The challenge was in the conversation with the mRNA vaccines, they had already made commitments 
for those vaccines to go to wealthy countries. So when we discussed what the timeline would be, it was late and the cost was quite high. And most importantly, they weren't vaccines that had characteristics that were ideal for developing countries. One was a minus 80 degree vaccine for storage with a short shelf life and the other minus 20. So at the end, we decided AstraZeneca would begin to be the main vaccines, but we always, and, and this goes back to where, where CEPI started, you know, believe that what we should have is a portfolio of vaccines. So we've grown a portfolio. We now have the largest portfolio in the world with 11 vaccines that are moving forward. And of course, they come in in different time frames. We eventually, when, as you described, there were challenges with AstraZeneca, we, we did deals both with the, the main parent company, which was new to vaccines, and they were doing this now by having um, uh, an outsourcing of production to many different places, which created its own challenges. But also, we facilitated transfer to the Serum Institute of India. And I know many people have said that's a mistake, but I believe it's the right thing to do. It's still the right thing to do. And I think it's proven by the fact that Serum was able to scale up and deliver over 1 billion doses to India during this time period, financed through the technology transfers and, and money we put. But what happened, of course, is early on they stopped um, exports, and that, of course, meant that um, you know, we had a problem. And so at that point, um, you know, that's when we asked other countries to provide dose donations for us um, in the interim before our advanced purchase agreements um, you know, came through. So I think this this other lesson, and I think it's an important lesson, is um, you know, will countries um, do the right thing? And I think it's an important point because the right thing in a global pandemic is to look at this as a global issue. And that's, for the, that's both for the, it's the right thing to do in terms of, of um, you know, taking care of others, but it's also the right thing to do for self-interest because you're really only safe if everybody's safe. And in a situation where you have a fast-moving infection with new variants you know, coming up around the world, if we don't vaccinate, we're gonna to continue to have those new variants that are going to be able to move. So I think that the, the, the biggest question in a sense is not just can we next time have contingent financing available and surge capacity, but how do we get countries to take in mind this global need and not just the national need. And so we saw a lot of that. So when we actually lay ourselves in front of where we were in swine flu, we actually did much better. We ended up with um, two and a half times faster um, and um, seven times the number of, of, of doses and about 10 times the number of countries in the same time period, the first doses were in, um, uh, delivered by COVAX 38 days after the first dose done in the UK. So lots of good metrics, but what ended up stopping us was this vaccine nationalism that was a real problem. One last point, oh, no. let me just one make last point is, and that is when we finally did make deals with the mRNA manufacturers, the timelines because of the vaccine hoarding that was going on in wealthy countries, um, for um, Pfizer BioNTech, we were able to get 1.2 million doses in the first half of 2021 and a total of 40 million across 2021. That's all we could get and we couldn't get any Moderna doses. So at the end, I think one of the challenges is how do we make sure that these are shared across a global landscape? And so thinking about those mRNA vaccines, you know, that countries have donated them, now you've made deals with, with Pfizer and, and then Moderna, 
what would you have done differently from the beginning? I mean, beside the financing, which of course took some time to put together, is there was there any strategy you would have done differently from the beginning to ensure those were part of that diverse portfolio? Well, I would have taken the Serum Institute of India and put it in Singapore. <laughs> and, no, all joking aside, I mean, obviously, one of the things you can do is you can diversify the manufacturing base, but to have companies that have that bandwidth and ability to produce in large quantities quickly and high quality mm -hmm. is a skill that doesn't exist in many places around the world. And of course, the challenge here was, you know, had that been Singapore, we would have saturated the marketplace um, in mm -hmm. the first manufacturing run. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing that, that, that could be done. But in terms of the mRNA manufacturers, the, the truth was is that they were um, pursuing um, uh, serving their, their marketplace and there was not, um, should I say, help from uh, countries to kind of say, no, you also need to supply developing countries at that point. So Gavi was really the logical choice to lead in the procurement and delivery questions with COVAX, you know, along with, with lead the AMC. But in some ways, this really meant moving away from just working with the 73 countries, the lowest income countries that had really been um, so much a part of Gavi for, for the previous 20 years and really taking on engagement with a much larger set in some ways. Um, you know, was the, as you all kind of moved into this, this new level of engagement with countries around the world, was your board concerned about its core mission and financial obligations? And, you know, were there sort of uh, resources or assets or, or skills that Nagavi as, as an institution that had been, you know, focused just on that smaller group of countries could have used and you know to really uh, move forward this newer agenda. The interesting debate was um, we had already begun to extend into um, some of the um, um, upper middle income countries, and um, and 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 sorry sorry the the um, lower middle income countries, and um, the the question was how far to go with that. So we were working on a middle income strategy because many of these countries had lower coverage with routine, vaccine, routine new vaccines than did um, the low-income countries, than did the high-income countries. So we were already beginning those conversations. So everybody was pretty comfortable moving from the 73 to the AMC 92. And that debate went very well. The, the, the more complicated debate was whether we also worked with the upper-middle-income and the high-income country. And in that group are obviously some countries that would get vaccines from no other source. And, and had issues in terms of um, uh, you know, embargoes and, and, and challenges, small island states and others that would have a problem doing this. And so um, there was a debate back and forth. The one thing the board said that was very important is we don't want those upper income and upper middle income countries to, um, to, to hurt the Gavi balance sheet. So we had to, in essence, financially isolate those two and that became a, a very important discussion point because in, in the upper middle income countries, there were a number of countries that had very low credit ratings and had challenges and how did we deal with guarantees. The second thing that happened that was very interesting is when we opened this up and 195 countries joined, I think that's an extraordinary number because um, it in essence was the largest gathering of countries coming together, um, you know, even, I mean, it would actually exceeded the number in the Paris Climate Accords, um, to, to work together on a problem. It showed at least a desire to work together. 
But one of the things that the high-income countries said is, we really want this as an insurance policy. We're not likely to buy vaccines you know, for routine. We're already buying vaccines, but we don't know if they're going to work. And you know, if we got the wrong one, we want this. And so they ended up changing the, um, the terms when we originally had a program that everybody would, would, would be able to um, have a confirmed access to vaccines, they wanted to set up some type of optionality and that became fiscally quite complicated and that led to a rethink. Um, now we've actually gone back for, for, for the self-financing countries, we've gone to a new version we're calling 2.0 where we've tried to take that risk out so that if countries want to work with us, they can work with us, but um, we don't have to put together these very complicated risk management um, ideas around it. And, and let me just finish with one of the important ideas, because you, you mentioned this issue of going to different regional bodies, et cetera. If we didn't have COVAX, if we had started with countries alone, imagine if you had 200 countries that were buying five to 10 vaccines each. I mean, this is a, you know, a Lord of the Flies scenario of complete chaos. Well, the same thing happens if you start having you know, global, regional bodies, others all competing with each other. All. And so you know, the challenge is trying to create the best marketplace would be a single marketplace that then was optimized for the best vaccines and optimized for um, you know, getting the, the best prices, et cetera. Um, but obviously the world wasn't ready for that and, and it's now fragmented. But I think the question next time is, do we want to go back to a, um, you know, everybody does their own thing or does there need to be some type of central focus? Well, let's go to the present or at least the very recent past. You know, one could argue that the reason or part of the reason that COVAX suffered some of these challenges in 2020 was that the Trump administration, which had earlier come in with, with a, I think, 1.16 billion multi-year commitment for Gavi, did very little to support COVAX early on until the very end of the year. And that was when the December 2020 emergency supplemental provided 4 billion, I think, over two years. And, and those funds were channeled through Gavi. Um, you could also say that U.S.-China tensions intensified under that period uh, and that they've continued to be a complicating factor in you know, this period as the Biden administration works to you know, create an aligned approach among a diverse set of countries and to really address this vaccine access crisis. Now, you know, the United States has committed to purchase this 1 billion doses of Pfizer Chinese companies have contracted to deliver 550 million doses through COVAX, and I believe you know, have committed to deliver another 1.45 or so uh, billion over the next year. So you know, I just wanted to ask you to reflect on kind of the recent history of the US-China relationship and how that's played out in the field of, of vaccines. Um, you know, back in the 60s, you know, there was the U.S. the U.S. Soviet collaboration around smallpox was actually a way to bring uh, countries together. But you know, do you see possibilities for for any you know potential uh, collaboration, or do you think we've entered a, a new period of of real conflict and you know, kind of um, in in terms of this next phase of of Covax's history and. How do, you, how do you balance you know, these US-China relationships within the facility itself? You know, first of all, I actually, there was a piece um, Anne-Marie Slaughter did um, on Sunday in the New York Times, and, and I thought it was quite interesting and really captured this. I mean, 
when you have a global pandemic, when you have something that's threatening the entire world, or if you're talking about climate change or other issues, we need a new way of thinking about these problems because these are not about, yes, we have to deal with political boundaries and countries on a map and, 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 and traditional alignments, et cetera, but we need all hands on deck to deal with those emergencies. And if we, in those moments, start to divide up and, and have favorites and non-favorites, it's a very, very risky place to go. And so I, 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 the way Gavi has operated its whole time has been completely non-political. What's been interesting is when the countries originally joined COVAX, I mean, yes, it's true China joined COVAX and China has been a donor, but so did Taiwan and, and so did Macau and so did Hong Kong. And, and you know, there were other examples like that. And, and we should be thinking about working in, in these situations um, across all countries. Frankly, um, you know, it, it was good if you remember, and we discussed it in the, at the time, when Ebola occurred in West Africa in 2015, and it occurred in a place where there were no health systems, took a really long time to diagnose it. In some sense, the fact that this occurred in China and they were able to publish the genome is what led Moderna to be able to, 56 days later, have a vaccine in a vial. So we have to keep in mind that we need global cooperation on these issues, and that's an important part of what we do. Now, at the moment that China did offer us doses, which, as you know, we did take, there were export bans on many other places. Those were the doses that were available and they were WHO pre-qualified and made sense. But our goal at the end is to try to get the best quality vaccines we can get that are most appropriate for countries and the volumes that they make. And the more we do that as a purchasing agent, the more we get rid of vaccine diplomacy and, and deals that you know create huge liens on countries and others for these products that are, that are really um, you know, in front of us. So I want to go back to that podcast comment you made about, you know, that building COVAX was like building a sailboat in a storm on the high seas. Um, you know, yeah, I still believe it. I'm wearing my sailboat. You're wearing your sailing so stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, certainly Gavi headquarters staff, alliance partners, um, you know, have all faced unprecedented pressures and challenges. And, you know, sort of, I think, you know, being pushed in different directions at different times over the past 18 to 20 months. But I wanted to ask you to say a bit about how the experience with COVAX has changed Gavi uh, in terms of its mission and, and how it will carry out its work going forward. And you know, how challenging is it to continue to maintain a focus on COVAX while implementing your new work plan and, and continuing to maintain this effort on routine immunizations? So first of all, let's just talk a little bit more about COVAX. So, COVAX is working, it is delivering. It's delivered to 144 countries. As of today, about half a billion doses. But as important a number um, is 1.04 billion um, doses that have already been allocated. The difference between the doses delivered and the allocated relates to the speed of scale up now. And so our original goals were to deliver 950 million doses to um, AMC countries, 950 million doses to self-financing countries, and 100 million doses for the humanitarian buffer. And turns out self-financing countries did not want um, that 950, they did a lot of deals, so those numbers have actually come down and, and um, we will deliver less than, than those numbers. Um, um, but we will certainly get very close if we don't get to the number we originally promised. And, 
I think that the, the challenge in thinking about this is that there was a moment where everybody wanted everything instantaneously, which is true in a pandemic, and that led to the kind of vaccine panics that existed. But I mean, you can't make it happen that quickly. Now, getting back to your, 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 your broadie question, the biggest frustration for us is, you know, we deliver more than half of the world's vaccine. So we have a lot of experience in doing that. And the challenge is we normally predict out five years. We even have 10-year projections on what those are like. And in this case, we just didn't have that. It was moving too quickly. We moved to donations, which came with short shelf life. We didn't know what brands. And, and that let down countries because countries couldn't plan well. For the countries that we had worked with, we had a relationship, we could explain that. For others that we didn't know well, it really looked like we, we didn't understand the need to plan, but we just couldn't get that type of certainty. As we move into purchase doses, we can get that type of prediction and move forward, although absorption capacity is gonna be critical. Now, in terms of what's changed in Gavi, we still have to focus. We've had three Ebola outbreaks since um, this started, and we've had to provide vaccines there. We've had cholera outbreaks. We've had um, you know, um, uh, measles and rubella outbreaks, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out we've been able to maintain routine immunization. So it went down 30 to 40% in March and April of 2020. Because of the resilience of the health system, it's back up now, and it's down to about 4% from the baseline at the end of 2020, which is the best of any health intervention. Still not good, because it took us a long time to get each of those you know, points up, but um, it shows the power of that system and the investment behind it. It may get worse in 2021, given the large volume of doses and, and some of the on and off lockdowns, but it's been very hard, as you say, for the staff, because we want to focus on supporting countries for routine at the same time we want to focus on COVID, but COVID has become so politicized, some polarizing, and that has spread to the developing world, which is a real challenge. Well, let's, let's talk about that as we look toward the future. You know, now it sounds like the forecast for COVID-19 vaccines is, is mixed somewhat. We're likely to see increases in vaccine production on the near horizon, but there is still a concern that the lower income countries will lag behind, either because of the lack of financing to purchase vaccines or an inability to deliver those vaccines the last mile. And then, of course, there's the challenge of actually getting people to want or demand the vaccines once they have access to them. And you know, if gaps continue as they are, you know, we could see you know, a, a movement of you know, the pandemic basically becoming a, a challenge in the poorest countries of the world. Um, you know, if the history of HIV and TB is any indication, a plausible scenario is that the poorest countries would be stuck at very low coverage rates for some time. So I don't have a sailing metaphor here, but when you look into your crystal ball, um, how do you see 2022 unfolding? And how do you see COVAX with what it's learned over the last 20 or so months, 18 or so months, I guess, how do you see it resetting expectations and expanding its operations to really meet these needs? So. 2020 was about supply um, insecurity and, and, um, and a, a, a challenge in supply. Um, right now, we're just flipping in most countries to issues on demand. And that's going to be where we are certainly going into 2022. Now, the beginning of 2022, there'll still be some supply issues. Um, and we'll, we don't know yet which manufacturers where, but there still will be issues. It won't have stabilized. Hopefully by the middle of the year, 
maybe, but you know, again, I don't have the crystal ball that really can tell me that definitively. But what we've learned about delivery is very interesting. Um, so initially, all the countries that we've gotten doses to have, you know, by and large been able to deliver them, but that's at small doses. So in essence, the small doses gave them time to begin to work on this. As we've now begun to scale up, and we look at every country um, on a weekly basis in depth, but you know, daily, we've seen somewhere between 18 and 25 countries that are having problems. Those are low absorption countries. And in those countries, it's a mixed bag of why. Some of them are, are hesitancy against certain vaccines or hesitancy in general. Some are just poor health systems and lack of health workers and others. They need intense engagement. So we're focusing more and more on that subset of countries. And we may need to slow down delivery of doses or put it into different allocations to get them those doses in time. The rest of the countries seem to be absorbing well. Now, again, when we get to very high volumes, it's going to be a challenge anywhere, and we'll have to see what the ultimate demand is going to be. And so for planning, it's gotten very complicated. So for 2022, we've changed, as I mentioned already, the self-financing paradigm. And what we need to do for all of the other countries is say, what is the goal you want, you as a country? And that's important because there's been a set of goals that have been put out, 70% of every country by, um, by um, the middle of next year. And um, the, 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 the Biden summit talked about uh, doing it by um, the UN General Assembly of next year. Mm -hmm. But I think the question we're gonna have to ask is our countries, is that what they want? Are they gonna have the demand for that? From a planning point of view, we are planning towards something like that number. But in the, in the, in the countries that have um, the demographic um, uh, pyramids that are such that you know large percentage of the population are young, getting to 70% means doing doses, not just in adolescents, but pediatric doses in terms of numbers. And so there's a number of, of planning assumptions that are gonna have to be made to think about that. So it's really important to get a signal from countries and that needs to be a signal that combines both the political ambition from the political leader, but then also an understanding of what the health sector can deliver and what's realistic for those countries on, and where they are. And, and you know, our job will be to work with them to try to move those forward as fast as possible. Now, I haven't mentioned variants. I haven't mentioned booster doses. I haven't mentioned um, you know, things we may find out about vaccines. So there's an enormous amount of uncertainty going forward. So the way we're planning is um, we're planning for an additional um, 600 million doses um, for 2022, um, of which 100 million would be um, routine doses for the, the coverage levels, and 500 million would go into a pandemic pool, which in essence would act as a buffer for any of these other issues that are going to be coming up because of the enormous uncertainties. And, um, you know, it's important because there are many different estimates out there of saying, you know, how many doses are available, how many are already in country, where they are, but we don't have a definitive knowledge of that, and we want to make sure that we have enough doses to provide people with it. So we'll be coming out with a new ask for that number of doses, some financing to pay for the auxiliary that are necessary for the dose donations. We've had um, commitments of up to 1.5 billion doses for dose donations, very generous to step up. But again, the timing of those and exactly what's gonna come with them needs to be made clear. And then finally, an additional um, billion dollars for um, um, support for delivery. I can only imagine the spreadsheets that must be involved in forecasting all of these different issues. 
Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an important point for the audience to hear because normally you can get very complicated spreadsheets and we can do that. In this case, there are unknowns upon unknowns upon unknowns. So you do the best you can, but the forecasts are changing on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. And yet we have to come up with the best numbers that are possible and that's what we're trying to do. So back at the beginning, one of the, when we started this conversation, you said one of the reasons that you didn't really approach the mRNA vaccine producers early on was that there was concern that with the deep, cold requirements that they might not be suitable for all the countries that you work with. How are you finding countries preparing for delivering those vaccines? What, what kinds of challenges are you facing there? Yeah, so, so we've actually gotten ultra-cold chain out to the countries. 80% of the countries that wanted it now have ultra-cold chain in place and is being used. And, um, you know, we will be supplying other countries that want it. Um, so that was a big, a big push to do it. The challenge is not ultra-cold chain in a city and central stores, et cetera. That can be done. It's a matter of having the planning and, and work to do it in training. The challenge is going to be how far down to the periphery you go. And right now, um, at least for the, for the Pfizer vaccine, you have 28 days at 2 to 8 degrees. So if you can meticulously plan, you can keep it at, at ultra-cold chain at the central level or maybe at the district level and then take it out um, for a period of time, but you have to have the campaigns really, really worked out. There is going to be a new formulation coming out of Pfizer, which will have a little bit more shelf life um, and um, will also not require dilutant, which has been a challenge, but um, it's still, unfortunately, my understanding is will require ultra-cold chain. So that'll be an important part of it. And so the way we've thought about it is how do we put a blend of vaccines available for a country? And you could see a situation where you know, maybe in the capital city and, and, and the main, you know, large um, um, regional centers, you could use mRNA vaccines with ultra cold chain, um, maybe for refugee camps or people in, 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 in insecure areas, you could use something like the Johnson & Johnson single dose vaccine that would be very attractive in other areas in the periphery where it's stable. You could use, you know, a two dose vaccine that is temperature stable and a little bit easier to handle like AstraZeneca or Novavax or other. And, and what we need to move, again, is towards a program like that. The challenge in doing that is if everybody is donating or different regional bodies are buying different things, it becomes very hard to plan that. And that has been one of the other planning assumptions that's, that's made it difficult. Well, speaking of regional collaboration, um, there's been a lot of diplomatic engagement lately, a lot of summits, a lot of ministerials. Uh, but some critics are saying that all of these different meetings are kind of more theater than actually productive and you know, really kind of questioning the whole purpose of, of all of these gatherings. But then last week, uh, there was the announcement about the agreement between Johnson & Johnson and COVAX uh, to make the vaccine available to people in conflict settings and other areas where there's really not much state presence. Um, I don't know if that's through the humanitarian buffer or, humanitarian or in buffer. connection elsewhere. But there was also the announcement about the scorecards and uh, accountability mechanisms. But you know, given some of these criticisms, and because there are a number of these diplomatic gatherings on the schedule over the next several months, what can be done to make them more effective and useful from COVAX's perspective? And you know, I guess in your relationship in particular with the United States, is there more that you need diplomatically um, from the US government to help make some of these gatherings really move the agenda forward? 
So I think one of the critical issues is um, there becomes a time where it becomes more of a talking show than a delivery show. And I think what's important now is we still have a problem to solve. We still have to get doses out. We still have to make sure every country has access. We have to make sure people that are in refugee camps, et cetera, have access. So when we are solving problems like the Johnson & Johnson, and by the way, just as a plug, Johnson & Johnson is the only um, you know, uh, uh, um, industrial vaccine manufacturer that has agreed to waive indemnification liability. None of the others have. And, and that's really important because if we want to have vaccines for those living in those places, they're still covered by our no-fault compensation scheme. But the difference is, is that a government can, can indemnify. Um, a, a small um, humanitarian actor cannot. And so the challenge is getting um, this type of, of, of um, waiver available. And by the way, there are not lawyers operating in these refugee camps. These vaccines have now been used in hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. It's not like it was at the beginning. So we really do hope that all of the companies will eventually agree to this waiver in that very specialized situation in, 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 in humanitarian buffers. But going back to your broader question, I think the challenge here is is working on improving the way we deliver. That's the most important thing we can do in terms of preparing for the future. And you know, we're pivoting very quickly to the theoretical, what might be the new construct, which organization might be the best to run pandemics in the future. We need to make sure we deliver on this one. We need to learn from what we're doing. We need to optimize on what we're doing and make sure that those lessons ultimately are what drive future directions. So a few minutes ago, you, when you were talking about some of the logistics and the planning and forecasting involved, you know, I, I wanted to, to come back to that and, and some of the capabilities that other organizations can, can bring to, to that. Uh, here at CSIS, the commission has a, a working group on the Department of Defense and what its capabilities might be, how they might evolve and change in, in future pandemics. Certainly we saw in the Ebola outbreak in 2014-15, the, the military, not just the US military, but others as well were involved. Do you ever envision calling on the US or other militaries uh, to, to assist in or provide advice in the logistics and procurement contracting and some of these issues with which those kinds of organizations have experience? Well, I mean, first of all, um, the, the one of our deals um, has already been um, done through the military um, here in the U.S., but also deliveries in many countries are being done uh, by the military. Of course, we have to be sensitive to um, some of the rumor mills that are out there and some of the bad things that have been said about this vaccine and not increase vaccine hesitancy, but this should be an all-hands-on-deck, and we should be asking in every country what are the best, um, you know, which, which agencies are best able to do this and what skill sets. And in terms of planning, we ought to be thinking about where we get the best data, the best planning to help us um, move forward. This is a very, this is the most complex vaccine rollout in history. And, um, you know, it really does need to have everybody, you know, helping here. What I think, you know, we don't need is, um, is, is just people um, talking in the abstract about it. It's really about trying to focus in on the problems that exist and fixing them. I just want to come back to that conversation we had in February of 2020 about the global architecture for health security and, and for dealing with pandemic threats. And just to ask you, you know, in five to 10 years, will we still be working with COVAX and ACT-A? Will, will these institutions be around or will we see newer and different global health institutions? And you know, when you're giving a lecture 
12 or 15 years from now, what overarching lesson would you share with the people creating those new institutions? So um, in terms of the lecture 12 years ago, um, the lecture I think is similar to the lecture I gave five years ago about the fact that these, these um, you know, I gave a TED talk on this. These, these events are going to occur and we need to prepare for them ahead of time. Not at the time of Ebola, it was whatever it takes, anything you need was the, was the message I got three months later. It was like that was yesterday's disease. We're not going to do that. Hopefully it's going to be different at this time, but we need to plan and be thinking about this going forward as a, as a critical priority. The, the language you used around this is interesting because COVAX is not an institution. Mm -hmm. And my own personal belief is we don't need new institutions. We already have what it takes. What we need is to use networks. That's the effective way to scale up and to scale back down. And the, the nice thing about a networked approach is you bring the people you need. So WHO and UNICEF were groups we worked with out of the Alliance. CEPI was a group that was new. We had worked with CEPI, but not as intensely. They were able to enter and do what they needed to do. We're working with the World Bank on certain aspects. We're working with different groups. And I think that's the effective way to do this. Now, there needs to be money available, as we said, and there needs to be um, some keeping warm the tools that we need. But the reason that's so important is if we were to create a new institution, the crazy thing about this is, you know, we might get a terrible another pandemic in a year, but it might be five years, it might be 10, it might be 15 years. And to keep that institution, all the people, everybody warm, the funds flowing, it's very difficult. On the other hand, if in this inter interim period, you build stronger vaccine delivery systems, you build and bring malaria vaccines or new TB vaccines, or you improve the delivery of vaccines for cholera and hotspots, you prepare both in the institution, but you also prepare those in country to do a better job of delivery. That's the way it ought to be done. Now I'm talking vaccines because that's my space, but you know it's the same thing as the Global Fund working on HIV or TB or other delivery of drugs. You are giving that practice, that skill set to countries, and that's the way we're going to lift up. So that's what I'd like to see in the next pandemic is that we've got the money available, We've got the, the, the systems kept warm, and we've innovated a lot for this particular one. They didn't have labels for pandemics. We didn't have no-fall compensations. We didn't have standardized INLs. We didn't have the EULs. All of those things, they need to be kept ready to go if we need them in the future, but that can be done with the existing systems. So it sounds like what you're saying is keep providing the services that the existing institutions are already providing, perhaps provide some additional surge capacity, and then when there is a crisis, the personnel are ready to go. Well, I mean, if I use the narrow example of Gavi, and we had talked about it ahead of time, we have a really interesting instrument called IFM, the International mm -hmm. Financing Facility for Immunization. And the way that works is um, it, it is able to float bonds on the corporate bond market based on guarantees. Had donors said, there's contingent financing available. If there's a trigger event of a certain type and you could specify what it is, we will then make money available. We could have on day one, back in January 20, when we were sitting in Davos, we could have said, okay, we're gonna trigger this, or maybe it would have taken till April till it was declared a pandemic, but you have to figure out the trigger points. But then there would be money immediately to go out and make those deals, to begin to hire staff, to begin to prepare countries for whatever the countermeasures would be. What happened instead is we launched COVAX at the, at, the, at the Gavi replenishment. We got some money at that point. It took us till the end of the year. Um, so that was from June until 
December to raise the first $2.4 billion, and then to mid the next year to raise the $10 billion that was necessary for the first tranche of doses, we, we have to do better than that. And I think the IMF has made the case over and over again. You know, they said, you know, take, spend $50 billion now because this already cost $12 trillion. And, you know, this is going to be a, a real cost-saving thing. We need, to, we need to think of this this way. And this is where we can learn from defense because in defense, people do think that way. In health, we normally don't. Seth Berkley, CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your reflections on the first year and a half of Gavi's work with COVAX, the lessons learned and opportunities for enhancing impact and improving globally equitable access, and for your leadership, and I can't resist it, in navigating the rough seas of COVID-19 vaccine delivery in 2020 and 2021. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 